Welcome to the UN and Organised Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. In this episode, we will continue looking into the newly launched UN negotiation process for illegal instruments on cybercrime, following the previous episode where we discussed the negotiation with a UK government delegate. Today, I'm going to be talking to the Global Initiative's New York representative, Summer Walker, who has been studying this process for a number of years. She will help us understand what the key issues really are and what expectations we should have for the upcoming negotiations. Summer, welcome to the UN and Organised Crime podcast. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Summer, ahead of the next meeting at the end of May, member states had to submit their positions and draft text language for several potential sections of the proposed treaty on general provisions, criminalisation and law enforcement mechanisms. You've been analysing those member state submissions. What do they indicate for the upcoming debates? Yeah, so, I mean, they were states were given a pretty short timeline um, in order to deliver some draft text from February to April 8th is not a huge amount of time. And so it's very interesting to see on the on the website. I mean, there are 24 government submissions, essentially. It's quite low for inputs towards a global treaty, considering there are over 190 members of the UN. But 24 itself is a bit misleading because one is an EU submission, which accounts for all its member states. There are also roughly 10 submissions from external stakeholders. So that would be um, the private sector, civil society, um, as well as international organizations such as Interpol. And most of those are human rights focused NGOs. So it's interesting to see um, who has been sort of quick to submit their their inputs. There's also no submission from groupings such as the African Union, um, ASEAN, CARICOM. And this could mean it was because of the short time frame to develop a joint statement, or it could mean that governments are holding positions that they cannot reconcile just yet. So it's just an interesting thing to watch. Russia's draft treaty was submitted again. They had submitted it in July of 2021. But this time it was also submitted on behalf of China, Belarus, Burundi, Nicaragua, and Tajikistan. And some of these partners are constant allies of Russia at the UN. But China joining this submission really clarifies its support for Russia when many are turning away from it um, due to the war in Ukraine. It's a really interesting choice by China because they themselves could have been leaders in their own right. I mean, they're part of the UN bloc G77 in China. They could have taken up the lead within that group. But now that they've attached themselves to the Russian draft, they would be less likely to get support, I think, from many of the G77 countries at this point. So we'll see how this will unfold in May, but it's an interesting point to pick out. Not all of the 24 submissions themselves by governments offer draft text for the treaty, but rather clarify positions and interests for the relevant topics. Uh, It's unclear what this will mean. So it could mean that governments are forced to choose between the text submitted by a small number of UN member states, or the perspectives of states could continue to be solicited as the process moves forward. But I think it is safe to assume that countries that have delivered actual text will probably be better placed to influence the drafting from the from the onset. And on criminalization, which seems to be 
one of the, the the main issues that needs to be clarified and addressed in in these early stages of the negotiation. Several participants in the last meeting or the first meeting emphasized the need for concrete definitions of cybercrime and cyber-dependent crimes. Um, and this dichotomy between cyber-dependent versus cyber-enabled crimes is probably the key issue uh, that needs to be addressed. Many stakeholders seem to agree that it's preferable to focus on cyber-dependent crimes and were cautious about listing a series of cyber-enabled crimes. And others feel the treaty should broadly capture a diverse range of issues. Can you walk us through, Summer, the difference between cyber-dependent and cyber-enabled crimes and explain the different viewpoints on this? And what are those different perspectives that we're seeing coming through in the debate? Yeah, great question. Cyber-dependent crimes are much more likely to gain consensus at this stage. But yeah, what constitutes cybercrime itself is on the agenda for May's meeting. Very briefly, cyber-dependent crimes are offenses that um, can only be committed using a computer, computer networks, or other forms of information communications technology. For this, think malware, hacking, uh, ransomware attacks. And so they also they threaten the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of access to data or systems. And cyber-enabled crimes are a little bit of a Pandora's box because they refer to offenses that occur online, but they also occur offline. So people who are committing these acts may deploy technology to achieve their ends, but you know some of these are already criminalized in many other spaces. Think um, arms trafficking, drug trafficking, um, human trafficking. So these, these are what are called uh, cyber-enabled crimes. So many of them are already illegal, as I was saying, but what the cyber aspect to it does is it really changes how the crimes are carried out, how they're detected or sometimes not detected, and what is needed in investigations and prosecutions for these crimes. So child sexual exploitation online is one of these which is included as an offense in the Budapest Convention, which is the um, Council of Europe's Convention on Cybercrime. And many do support its inclusion in the upcoming treaty. But there are a lot of other um, offenses that some states have started to list out, which start to question how broad the scope of this treaty will be and whether that will be palatable for a wide enough range of, of states to sign on to. It also brings into question the issue of content-related crimes and this is the area that really carries strong risks for freedoms online, human rights, and civil and political rights. So for instance, the, um, I guess now we can call it the Russia-China draft, it includes a call that states make illegal the distribution of or providing access to materials that call for, quote, illegal acts motivated by political, ideological, social, racial hatred. And these illegal acts could really include um, any type of anti-regime sentiment, the way that it's phrased. It could be used um, to go against certain, certain communities, such as LGBTQI groups. And so really, this is where the, uh, the human rights concerns come into, come into play. It's also interesting to note that a topic that's not on May's agenda is international cooperation. But because Russia has submitted a draft treaty already, we know what's in it. And in the international cooperation section, it has a clause that states that governments cannot refuse extradition based on the grounds that 
the crime relates to a political offense. So really, um, the the details are out in the open there, which which are the concerns for many many people. So I think issues to look out for in the next meeting include the scope of criminalization, but it also includes issues like extradition, how to define jurisdiction in the treaty, and really what law enforcement cooperation should look like. And this is why the definitions used in the section are, are really important, because depending on how member states opt to criminalize actions, there might be risks to international norms that will allow for crackdowns on dissent, um, stifling investigative journalism, for instance, political debate. So, yeah, I think criminalization will really be a, a key topic in May. So um, just to clarify, Summer, I mean, do you see kind of a real risk in this negotiation process that a, a kind of long list of some of these other types of crimes um, that you've mentioned could actually you know, walk back um, human rights and privacy standards. Yeah, I think I think that is that is one of the risks. I think a long list leaves it open to interpretation. I also think leaving crimes vague or open to flexibility is a real um, risk in this type of a convention. So specificity and really focusing on what is not covered in other treaties, to me, um, seems like like a good way forward. But that's a personal opinion. Thanks, Summer. And you mentioned some of the other legal instruments. You know, in the first meeting and in some of those submissions, you can see lots of references to the, the Council of Europe uh, Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, as well as the UN Convention on Transnational Organized Crime um, and its protocols. There seem to be lots of calls to make sure that we're building on existing legal frameworks. What, what, what do you think this means in, in practical terms? Yeah, so I think for the upcoming meeting, it sort of has two, two main things. I think the first is that um, there's a lot of procedural aspects from the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime and others that can be used in this this new convention, when you know that it's already what's working, can be used, I think. The second, I think, is the scope of criminalization. Could consider um, regional agreements, but also consider this wider range of UN protocols and treaties that already exist. It'll help to recognize what's already codified in international cooperation. This will help avoid duplicating these types of crimes as specific cyber-related crimes. I think it's also important to consider when thinking of these existing frameworks, it's extremely hard to take something out of a document once it's already in. For many years, I covered drug policy at the UN, and you know it's really hard to remove something that's become a norm. So for instance, the 1988 drug treaty was believed to criminalize drug use. Technically, the language does not, but this became sort of a standard and in 2022, it really remains a global norm that many people are, are still working against quite intensely to try to shift uh, drug use towards social and health-related responses as opposed to criminalization and jail. There's another aspect that um, is really helpful in this type of discussion, which is resolutions to treaties so that they modernize and they adapt to new conditions. They're a fairly common practice at the UN. And for something such as cybercrime, which is rapidly changing, which is uh, still a bit contentious in discussions about what should be in, what should be out, 
you know, having a, a very slim treaty that then over the years can be added to with resolutions might be better suited to this process. So I think um, as this process has, you know, it's only grown more divided with the war in Ukraine, less is probably more in the early stages. Thank you very much, Summer, for joining us on this podcast. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UN Organized Crime podcast, which was focused on the UN Cybercrime Treaty negotiations. As a civil society produced podcast series, we hope that this podcast will bring this process to a wider audience and encourage debate and engagement between member states, civil society, private sector, academia, and others. You can subscribe to the UN Organized Crime on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast series. You can find more information on globalinitiative.net. Mm-hmm.